I think that the role of a leader in any organization is to convince the people that uh, they have the privilege of leading, that they are part of something that is bigger than themselves, that they are part of a, a mission to make the world a better place. Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, 15-year NFL and NBA business exec, widely known as the 49ers Y coach, now your coach. Join me on this journey from why to purpose to impact. The key to it all, taking action. Prepare to get tactical as our guests share their daily playbook where purpose no longer has to be a distant North Star. It can become a 365 way of life. Let's go. Playmakers, it's about that time to welcome Eric Schoenberg into the conversation. Eric is a longtime business journalist and media executive, most recently the CEO of Iconic Media Brands, Inc. and Fast Company. He is now dedicated to the fight against misinformation and disinformation and to restoring trust in professional journalism. In prior career chapters, Eric was the founding editor of CBS Money Watch, managing editor of Money Magazine, assisting managing editor at Fortune, and vice president at Goldman Sachs, earning record-setting accolades along the way that positioned him as a go-to guest on CNBC, CNN, The Today Show, and Good Morning America. Today, he'll share how he climbed through the media ranks with purpose, leveraged his values as a guiding force, and the dangers of falling prisoner to the attention economy. Buckle up, and let's welcome Eric Schoenberg into the Playmakers podcast. Eric, welcome to Playmakers. How are we doing? <laughs> We're doing great, Paul. Nice to be here. Absolutely. I'm fired up. And on behalf of all playmakers, welcome into the fam. And so the way that you and I actually got connected, and so playmakers will know this, about uh, less than a month ago, a man by the name of Naren Ariel blessed us with his presence. And so CEO of Amplify Publishing, you're now a part of the Amplify fam. So rather than uh, tell you, you know, what the hardest part of working for Naren is, Tell us, why do you love him? Because we got such positive feedback. What, what attracted you to Amplify? What, how did you, how do you know Naren? Just walk us through that piece. Uh, well, I was brought in to Amplify by the uh, the latest investor in Amplify, mm. um, Josh Linkner. Yeah. Um, who He's I mean, also been on my the podcast as well. So the, yeah, we're all familiar. And so that's how I met Naren. And uh, what do I like working about him? You know, I... I, I, th I think that I most appreciate is that Naren is just a, a hell of a great guy. Yeah. Um, he is honest, trustworthy, fun to be around, really dedicated to the mission of Amplify. And, you know, it, you can say that uh, people need particular skills to be a successful CEO, but to be a successful colleague, it's just great to have someone that you enjoy working with and that you trust and that you know is going to keep their promises, has got your back. And Naren is that kind of guy for me. Yeah. Well, as you know, and I always sometimes I have a little fun with this. I almost relate working to dating. And my line is, you, you got to date some crazy to find the one. <laughs> and so in corporate talk, I would say it's OK if especially early to mid-career, you might experience some bad whether bad boss, bad leader, bad culture, whatever. And it sucks, but at least you're learning, hopefully picking up experience, information, relationships along the way. And then when you taste the good and you know the difference, you say, ooh, 
I'm going to hang out in this good space because I know what the other side is like. Warren Buffett says that the best thing about being rich is that you can work only with people you like. And uh, I think that that, you know, I, I'm, I'm still a few billion short of Warren Buffett at the moment, <laughs> but I think I have uh, over the decades acquired enough discernment anyway to know yeah. the kind of person I like working with. And Naren is that kind of guy. So I, I never connected these dots, but uh, I'll, I'll keep it PG-13. We'll, we'll say the no a-hole rule. But, you know, I didn't realize that uh, Warren Buffett had said that. So whether that was what sparked kind of, because you always hear that, right? And especially not just for folks that have made it financially, but I just think folks that are very confident, self-aware, uh, just high EQs is probably how I would put it. Like you're just tired of working for an a-hole. So anyways, yeah, we could go there forever. But before being the editor-in-chief at Amplify, obviously many chapters in your career, and we'll probably double-click on several. But most recently, uh, head of Mansueto Ventures, which for those that may not be familiar with that brand, there's a couple of brands that you serve as CEO of that will be very familiar to all playmakers, which are Fast Company and Inc. So walk us through, knowing that there's probably different missions, different audiences, et cetera, but there still is some overlap. What was that experience like to be CEO of both? Oh, God, that was, it was a wonderful, wonderful job for two iconic business brands that, you're right, they were different. Um, each of them had fiercely loyal audiences in their own way. So Inc. Mm. laser focused on entrepreneurs and operated under the belief that entrepreneurs are the hardest working, most daring, courageous, and most necessary people in a free mm -hmm. enterprise economy. And that if you are the kind of person who is willing to take the risks and take the responsibility to being where the buck stops, and meeting payroll, then you have more in common with other people who've done that, regardless of what industry you work, you're working in. Mm. If you put your name on the door, you put your name on the company, you took the, the decision to start it up, um, then you're part of a unique fraternity, sorority of founders. And that was the audience for Inc. Yeah. For Fast Company, Fast Company was built around a notion that was novel when Fast Company started in 1995, that work should be a mission, that you should mm. be driven to find your purpose in your employment. And so it's not exclusively aimed at entrepreneurs the way Inc. is, but Fast Company is really dedicated to the idea that work has meaning and it mm. should be innovative and stimulating, and it should align with your values. And around this notion, uh, Fast Company arose as, as a brand. And as it evolved, it became aligned with specific things like beautiful design, both in the companies that we covered and elevated and recognized with uh, recognition programs, but also in the design of the print publication and the website themselves. Also with socially conscious businesses, mm -hmm. um, that is another mainstay of Fast Company's focus and it wears its political orientation on its sleeve. Um, and that, you know, for reasons that, that should be obvious is really aligns with the original purpose of Fast Company that work is part mission, uh, part employment um, and and part stimulation and innovation and excitement. 
Absolutely. And I think the overlay of what you said, while there are some unique angles to both, there was a stickiness. There was some level of uh, a loyal audience, a tribe, and and this commitment to the cause, or, or you said the mission. And maybe that's where we go next, because as you know, so not only are we all playmakers listening in, it's playmakers on purpose. And we look at purpose as a lifestyle. It's not just about this North Star that feels very distant and out of reach for some. It's more of how am I showing up each day? And how do I find meaning in the smaller things in those moments? How am I making decisions, taking action? And are they aligned with who I am? Right. And, and so I would ask you, so now for Eric, how has purpose, how has mission shown up uh, both for you as a person and then also how you've been able to integrate throughout your career? Well, you could argue that journalism is a, purpose-driven profession, regardless of where you work, mm-hmm. um, almost regardless of where you work. Let's, let's be honest. <laughs> couple exceptions, sure. <laughs> yeah, a couple exceptions. And um, uh, because after all, uh, you know, there are lots of really bright journalists who could make a lot more money on Wall Street, say, mm-hmm. uh, or in private equity than they could, you know, meeting deadlines to write stories and editing stories. Uh, but it so happens that my career has jumped pretty much from service publication to service publication, where the goal is to help readers, help the audience do something important in their life. Um, and for example, the the place I started in journalism was Money Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, where I started as a fact checker back when that was actually a job and ended up as the editor-in-chief. And Money was about helping people achieve financial security for themselves and for their families, to take away the stress of not knowing how to manage your money and uh, and not knowing you know, if you would have a secure future. And all the stuff that you need to know about money to operate successfully in, in a capitalist country and yet is never taught in mm. school. And I really never had a day going into work at money in which I did not feel like I was doing something that was important and helping to make people's lives better. And then fast forward to Inc. and Fast Company, where uh, the goal is on on the Inc. side to help entrepreneurs succeed. And if you believe, as we at at Inc. do, that entrepreneurs are essential to things that grease the economic engine of a free enterprise economy, they are where job creation occurs. It's where innovation occurs. It's where founders and the people who join the founders early in a company's history uh, find purpose and, f- mm. and align their lives with a, a sense of mission. Um, helping th- that group of people succeed, that definitely makes the world a better place. And then leaping over to Fast Company, where um, the whole orientation is business as a purpose-driven, mission-driven enterprise um, with a with particular offshoots at Fast Company and beautiful design and social justice. That, too, is something that just makes you feel good about getting up in the morning and going to work. Oh, it's so good. And, and I think the common thread there would be feeling like you're a part of something bigger than yourself. 
whether it's the reader in mind, whether it's why you served loyally for years and years at these wonderful places. Uh, it's because it's not about Eric. It's not about Paul. It's about us being a part of something bigger than ourselves. And when we feel that tribal effect, I, I think that can be a very powerful thing for a lot of folks that are listening in and asking ourselves, honestly, it, do I feel like I'm a part of a tribe? And, you know, I think there's folks that sometimes put a wall up between their personal life and their professional life. And I'll admit at, at one point there was a work Paul and a personal Paul. And then I realized when I found not only my why, but my core values, one being authenticity, that's what tore down my own wall and said, there's only one of me. And if I'm showing up authentically, why do I have to change so drastically just because of environment? Uh, then, then I'm having to, so I, you know, that, that's another piece there, but, but essentially you feel most alive when you feel like you're a part of something bigger than yourself, period, point blank. That's what we're all after. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the role of a leader in any organization is to convince the people that uh, they have the privilege of leading, that they are part of something that is bigger than themselves, that they are part of a a mission to make the world a better place. And there are many ways to do that. Uh, and uh, it's the leader's job to see that that path clearly and then communicate it to people. So let's double click on leadership. If I were to pull out a Webster dictionary, it's going to have something to do defined as ah, rank, role, title, authority. It almost exclusively focuses on leadership of others. But maybe somebody listening in isn't in that quote unquote positional leadership role. But I would argue if we thought of the greatest leader we've ever had, it wasn't just how they led us, it's how they led themselves. And so leadership of self, you don't need a title to lead yourself. How would you advise a playmaker listening in that says, look, screw position, I just want to be the best version of me. How can I most effectively lead myself what are some simple, smaller, practical things that you would say exemplify the best leaders of self? Wow, that is uh, such a rich question, Paul. Uh, you you touched on one of the aspects, I think, which is authenticity, a word that is used, you know, loosely and and perhaps excessively these days. But to me, it it means that the values that you communicate in your role, you know, whether you're at the top of the masthead or in the middle or at the bottom are the, the values that you live your life by. And I think that that is, let me put it this way. When you, when you execute your role in a company that way, people notice. Yeah. And that is a path to leadership. People trust it because they know that you're not going to turn out to be someone different from what they what they expected mm -hmm. and um and trust is you know the absolute essential uh facilitator of you know success at work and effectiveness at work so i, I you know that's I, I think that's one thing I, you know another thing is just having the self awareness to mm. understand who you are and um essentially and what is often hard for leaders is to understand what your limitations are um the the one of my mentor marshall goldsmith the, the oh, uh, love marshall. very prominent executive coach mm -hmm. paul you know him um he says that that leaders tend to be 
victims of two particular weaknesses. Uh, one is that um, they have to win too much. I mean, you, ah. you, know, you get to be in a position of trust and responsibility, and you've probably had a lot of wins through your life. You know, you were you were a good student, or you were. Sure. Uh, you know, popular person in, you know, the communities that you were part of. And, you know, you get are very good at getting people to do what you want them to and so forth. And yet, um, if you can't let go and let the people who work for you win, um, mm. then you're not going to be a very effective leader. And I've seen this with young editors who were promoted under me uh, or alongside me from being writers and reporters. So basically going from being in a pure contributor position to being a manager. Mm -hmm. And I think for them, uh, as for leaders in many other industries, it's really hard to not want them to do things the way you would and not to imagine that you do things the best possible way. And um, if you modify what people do so much that um, that it becomes your way. You kind of suck the the life out of them. So that's yeah. that's one part of uh, a, a leader's weakness. And the other one is related, uh, which is leaders try to add too much value. So imagine someone <laughs> comes to you with an idea for a new program or a new idea or a new sure. story here in, in journalism. And as a leader, you have to resist the impulse to say, oh, that's a good idea, but why don't you try this? Or why don't you add that? And once again, if you have, if you do this unwisely or clumsily and you basically take over their idea, you have sucked the enthusiasm out of an idea and made the person who brought the idea to you an unwilling participant in it. And that's never going to be good for the execution of the idea. I had yeah. a mentor uh, when I was a, a new editor at money who said if the and and at time inc uh where i cut my teeth as an editor it was very common for editors to heavily rewrite the copy that writers submitted and what this mentor told me was that if your change is not going to improve the copy the audience's experience by 35 percent or more don't make it it's not worth it in terms of the damage you do to the morale of the people you work with. And I've heard that ratio in another context from a military officer, the needed improvement before you add value to somebody's idea was 80%. 80, wow. So this is hard for uh, a leader who's used to winning, who's used to having people praise their ideas and their successes, not to want to you know, impose their view on what their team does. But unless your team is enthusiastic and believes that their ideas are their own and their execution and their achievements are their own, you're going to have a hard time leading them. And the culture that you want to create is going to be very hard to take root. All right, Playmakers, it's about that time to discover your why. It only takes five minutes, and on the other side, you will better understand who you are, how you think, and why you do what you do. Here's how you get the assessment. Text the word WHY to 
564-7857. Again, open up a text and send the word Y to 310-564-7857. For coaching after, DM me. For now, let's get back to the show. This is so good. And where we'll go next is, so a lot of playmakers, and this is something that we intertwine throughout every show. And, and you took actually very recently the why assessment. And this is all connected. I'm going somewhere with this. So your why is trust, mine is contribute. Playmakers, if you haven't already, you know what to do. If you're listening to this episode from start to finish, you'll know exactly how to get to the why assessment. But where I'm going with this is, so one of uh, the CEO of my consultancy, he his why is better way. And speaking of these limitations, these arbitrary things, whether 30%, 80%. So we had a rule because when you're a better way person, what wires you, why you're so unique and, and why you're awesome at your best, but every why has a superpower and a kryptonite, both. And so what we realized is, I'm not going to name his name, but I'll just say this. If you were going to make something 1% better, if you were going to contribute an idea that made things 1% better, but it took the the bandwidth of six months of 10 people, was it worth it? And logically, you would evaluate that scenario and say, no, not for 1%, maybe for 80%, maybe to quadruple our profit margin year over. Sure, but for 1%. So what we did, we said, hey, uh, at the beginning of every meeting, you're going to get one post-it. You can, and on that post that you can write a better idea via your better way superpower, but you're limited to one per meeting. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so, cause otherwise it's like, man, like I'm going to give you 10 ideas and it's not from ego. He's amazing, but you just, you gotta beware of the kryptonite. Yeah. Well, that is, a, that is such a great technique. I'll remember that. Yeah. And and so the why is also connected to values. You've mentioned values a couple of times. Uh, share with us, uh, A, how did you find your values, discover your values? I know there's so many processes. Sometimes it's very organic. Other times it's very intentional. But we'd just love to know, A, what values you're open to sharing, B, how you landed on those um, and, and how they've impacted your life. Because I think there's a lot of folks out there that always hear the advice of living through the lens of your values but maybe they don't know where to start and maybe they don't know even the second step to take. So would love to just uh, hear your personal experience with values. Paul, I don't know where I got my values. Uh, I think hmm. that they were um, something that was planted in me by uh, my upbringing, um, my DNA for all I know. Sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All I know is the things that attracted me uh, when I was, you know, at very important inflection points in my life. Um, for example, what got me into journalism was that I came of age while the afterglow of Watergate was still sort of the way that people looked at journalism as a, a force within a democracy that held power to account. Uh, and that seemed to me like a very important and kind of, you know, heroic in in my in my young mind role and so that drove me in that direction and now as i pivot away from ink and fast company um and devote myself to helping mitigate the effects of misinformation and polarization on our mm. democracy uh the thing that drives me is a sense of responsibility um that i have 
like other people like me, have been the beneficiary of American democracy for my entire life. And to see it threatened by, you know, uh, our inability to handle social media and to uh, curb its effect on uh, on our democracy and to curb the power of people who would wield social media for their own ends, um, that strikes me as something that I need to defend. And and you know the mm. way I framed it to myself is, and and pardon me for the grandiosity of this, but this is sort of in the privacy of my own brain. Um, <laughs> the when my grandchildren which I don't have any of, but let's say for theoretical, my hypothetical grandchildren ask me what I did when democracy was under attack. I don't want to say I grew custom content revenues by 2.5% or whatever. I want to say I was, I did what I could to be part of the solution. So good. All right. We're coming back to misinformation in just a couple of seconds, but I, I also want to validate what you said leading up to that, which was, and I appreciate the vulnerability, uh, frankly, uh, of Paul, I don't know where I found my values, but exactly what you said after is, look, I coach this, so it's easy for me to kind of play the Monday morning quarterback here. But the way that we discover our values is by reflecting on our life. It is solely about our life experiences, both the peaks and especially the valleys. And when we find common themes of, oh, this is why that positive experience was so meaningful to me. This is how it molded me versus this is how this tragedy, this crisis, this obstacle, but it was the resurrection from this dark chapter. And you start to understand there's themes. And when you violate your values. So when I, when I was called out as an example that, Hey, Paul, your team doesn't think you care about them, which was something Mm -hmm. I heard in a performance review after uh, probably 13 straight years of positive reviews. And this one was another attaboy Polly because we hit the revenue number. But I said, give me one thing to improve on. And that's what I got. And it was the wake up call that I needed. And I was ready to hear it. I was ready to act on it. But you know why it was so meaningful to me? Because I didn't have to change. It was because I already had the awareness that a core value of mine is authenticity. And when I was called out, I realized, hmm, my heart cares about my team, but my actions aren't showing it. And that's what matters. And so that reflection point for me, kind of where I'm going with this is I needed to understand what got me out of bed so that when I violated those things, it was very meaningful to me and it created permanent change. And so you almost have to go through some of those rock bottom moments and ask yourself, why was it so painful? And there's probably a value in there that's very important to you. And that's why it pissed you off. (laughs) So it's, it's a really interesting piece. So I think reflecting on your career, but now the current chapters. So we've talked a lot about the former chapters. So where you're investing your time as we speak, a lot of it is in this space of misinformation. If I'm a playmaker listening in, and you shed some light on it already, but help us understand what it is, define it for us, and why it's so important to you. Again, I think you shed some light on this, but it'd be great to unpack it a bit more. Sure. Well, thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, This is a topic that is really close to my heart. So just to answer the question about the definition, 
the textbook definition, I, I'm sure most people in the field would agree, is that misinformation is false information that is spread by people who believe that it's true. So you can imagine that there are people who are anti-vaxxers or flat earth believers or whatever, uh, who are spreading information that everyone on this show recognizes is not accurate, but they believe it is. Um, they've been dragged in, down a rabbit hole by social media or by influential people. And uh, so they're spreading information that they that they believe, but we know is not true. Disinformation is information spread by people who are aware it's not true, but are spreading lies because it is it it, it advances some agenda they have. And uh, mm. so, uh, you know, the Kremlin or the secret service of Russia spreading misinformation about Ukraine, you can see that truth, truthfulness is not a, a main priority for them when they're communicating whatever they message they want um, or creating chaos uh, in the U.S. around elections. And you can see mm. that that might be a... Uh, an international goal for Putin and people who support Putin in Russia, but um, they don't believe that it's true. Um, and then there are people who are adopting Russian disinformation tactics in the U.S. Uh, because it serves their purposes. And Alex Jones would be a great example there, someone who knows full well that the murders in Connecticut were not um created by crisis actors, but has found that it's very helpful for his status in the world to make that claim and, and rile a lot of people up. So that's misinformation, that's disinformation. But regardless, the harm that they cause is polarization. Oh, and yeah. The basic fundamental thing that's on the lies on the other side of misinformation and disinformation is polarization dividing the country mm. making, leading people to question democracy making democracy hard to work because we've so demonized the other side and so that i think is part of the information so not just stomping out falsehoods from the information bloodstream but trying to bring people back together and get Americans to believe in a shared reality so that with all the legitimate disagreement that we may have with each other, that we can at least converse in a civil way and compromise and move the country forward and solve the, the problems we have. Yeah, because like you said, on, on one side, there's uh, dividers, and then on the other, there's another approach of unifiers. And so I... Look, uh, and I'll admit that's why that's my challenge. And I'll just be uh, it's not even about taking a side because everything I share is more about unity. But part of what's frustrated me about something like, let's call it the news industry is it's just so polarizing. I don't care which side you're on. I really don't. It's just like but but it's saying the other side is wrong. That's that's hurting us more so than the the beliefs. And so I, how does this land with you, actually, Eric? I, I'm curious to pick your brain on this because you're, you're, I'm not an expert in this space, but I have, there's a friend of mine. She's worked in what I'll call the news industry, but what was really interesting. So when you think of, okay, if I had to choose 
a channel from the left, channel from the right. Let's just uh, say for sake of this example, you got Fox on one side, CNN on another. She actually worked for both. So over some mm. uh, adult beverages, I, I asked her, I said, you seem so passionate <laughs> when you worked at, at station A versus station B. And how the heck did you do that? And she said, oh, and again, this could have been the beverages talking. She said, you actually think it's the news industry. She's like, it's the attention industry. Hmm. All, all I was doing was creating attention for my employer. And so, and literally, I mean, I'm, I'm cleaning it up a little bit, but I don't know. How does that land with you? Is that true? Like I, I, I've never been able to ask this, but I just think you're such an expert in the space of, uh, you know, what industries you've been exposed to. Yeah, uh, there is a, a whole attention economy and mm. uh, the competitors include not just the, you know, nationally recognized professional media or, sure, or sure. locally recognized, but but video games and uh, anything that mm. competes for your attention, sports, anything that competes for your attention. And where does that drive you? Well, in the news media, it drives you to, and in the social media, it drives you towards content that is outraging, that is perplexing, that is yeah. disgusting, that is novel, um, and not towards truth. Mm. So that is the, I think that's the fundamental um, dichotomy, the the tension that drives the media industry uh as a sure. as a particular um industry right now and, and media is a very broad term and most of course use it to include professional journalists uh, you know from you know including from like a not-for-profit like ProPublica an investigative not-for-profit yep. journalism arm to you know videos on TikTok and clearly at either end of the spectrum the contributors to those platforms are held to very different standards of accuracy and yeah. honesty. And my goal is to restore the trust in the profession that is dedicated to telling the truth. So one thing that that you could do to sort of just sort of as a sort of very blunt rule of thumb uh, in describing for your in your own mind whether sure. a source is reliable or not is so suppose that um in you know one source of news uh treats falsehood in one way so they um if anyone is caught deliberately creating falsehood they get fired if an institution understands that it distributed something false it apologizes um at the other end um <laughs> There are people who spread falsehood and they get richer. Um, and if an institution finds that it spreads falsehood, it says it's not my fault. We're not yeah. actually in the news business. It, it's somebody, it's it's them. Or they simply double down on the falsehood because it's rewarding. Um, professional journalists work hard to get yeah. things right. Yeah, um, That's not to say that there are, they're not subject to human biases. It's not to say they don't make mistakes. And it's not to say that their business model pushes them to do things that are 
mm. you know, that are subject to all the all the forces of the attention economy to write lurid headlines sometimes to um take stances uh that that confirm the biases of the audience rather than trying to challenge them to tell it yeah but at its best the profession is one of those professions like science like medicine like law at its best that aims to tell the truth to be accurate to conform with the rules that we have created for ourselves about what is a fact and what isn't and you're right at its best i i could argue that would go for i i think there are some usual suspects that you called out but even the field that i came up in sales it could have a very negative brand and and to use a very convenient cliche the used car salesperson right and how, how do you do the opposite of whatever that negative perceived brand is of what a salesperson is and i've had to fight that my whole career frankly yeah. and 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 that's fine it's hey you sign up for it and in my case i signed up for it so no one's there's no pity party let me ask you this so last uh last conversation last playmakers episode wonderful conversation with a man named Ken Sterling. He works at one of the top speaker bureaus in the world, um, uh, Big Speak in Santa Barbara. But where we ended the conversation, maybe this is a question that I want to lob to you because I asked him for the number one piece of advice, which newsflash, Eric, I will be asking you that at the end of this conversation. So buckle up, but uh, no pressure. So what he said essentially got us to the point of managing technology and you know the, the the fork in the road is are you managing the technology or is technology managing you so i think a lot of how we consume what you call the attention economy it's not all based on technology but it's a, a lion's share is so how would you guide somebody through um if the goal is for you to manage technology versus not let the technology manage you do you, do you have any insights there um i think that the self-awareness of how you are being manipulated is a key thing to understanding. So uh, the that is sort of the basis of the field of news literacy, uh, which means sort of in the same way that you educate your kids about distinguishing between advertising and and content, you know, meaningful content on their platforms. You have to do this yourself when it comes to consuming information um you know it used to be that the gatekeepers the editors of network television and the big institutional newspapers were that did that work for you they would not let information that seemed false to them cross their desk and get distributed to their audiences and they they still do that, but they are now just a small part of the information ecosystem. Mm. And uh, this is not to say that you should not get your information from any source other than professional journalists, because that's not realistic. But what you should do is just be alert to the signs that you are being manipulated. Those signs are, um, are your emotions triggered? Mm. Um, does the claim that's being distributed to you, make you angry or outraged or disgusted or surprised, then there's a chance that you're being manipulated and you should be careful about the credence that 
you give to the information that's being sent your way that way. Yeah. Does the does the information does a claim um, flatter one of your favorite narratives about how the world works? So if you believe that um, all politicians are corrupt, is does this claim play into that idea? And again, if it does, um, don't immediately accede to it just because it it um, conforms to the way you think the world works. Sure. Give it some analysis. Apply those rules of, of factuality that you 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 already understand yeah. um, about whether something is believable or not. And then finally, um, don't give in to the urge to be part of the the team, the tribe in the worst sense of the world word is that we all believe this set of facts and the other tribe believes this other set of facts, like expose yourself to all kinds of information mm-hmm. from all kinds of sources. And um, when it comes to sort of speaking up among your own tribe, um, aim to be known for wisdom rather than being known for loyalty to what the tribe believes. Mm, so good. So good. So as we're coming down the home stretch here, just a, a quick hit on a, on a positive note, because you've given us a lot to think about and process. And I have a feeling that uh, this conversation is going to be one that we hit rewind and play and rewind and play because you, it's been a very introspective conversation on the positive side. What are you most looking forward to? If you were as a futurist, as somebody that thinks a lot about the future, what are you most excited about? Well, I think that the future in in media in particular, which is, of course, as you noted, where I'm focused right now, is that there will be many new competitors to the big platforms, mm. um, the, the TikToks and Facebooks and Twitters uh, that now dominate the landscape, in which you can choose how you want news to be amplified. Do you, you know, in the attention economy, there's a lot of advantage given to news that outrages people and makes them angry and, and and that therefore causes them to be engaged and stay on longer and then you can sell more ads to them but um but i think that there will be regulation as there always is for new technologies that prove to have a downside as well as an upside and that will make the way the algorithms work more transparent and then you'll have a choice um just as you now have a choice of, you know, whatever mobile technology carrier you use, um, you are not stuck with whatever you signed up with at first or where your friends yeah. are. And yep. so I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to people making decisions about um, how their information is news, how their news feed works. And there, and that alone will trigger all sorts of information, uh, um, change rather, improvement in how information is spread. Absolutely. I I love it. I love it. Eric, uh, you picked up many playmakers today that have, uh, I'm guessing, whether on the edge of their seat, whether they're uh, thinking deeply on that on that highway drive or whether they're just uh, pedaling and and jogging and doing what they do. But needless to say, I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of folks that would love to connect with you, find you, follow you. So how do we best engage with you? Uh, I am on LinkedIn. Uh, and that is a great place to find me. Cool. Great. And I told you this was coming and I told you no pressure. So I'll repeat, no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Number one piece of advice. And this can be something that uh, maybe uh, advice you've been given 
or advice that you've shared with others. You could you could tackle either or, but would love to just close us out. You've already given us so much insight, but what's one closing piece of advice? I think the best skill that people can develop and the underdeveloped, most underdeveloped or certainly um, underpromoted skill is listening. Mm. Listening gives you uh, insight into information that you would never have from the wisdom of other people who have totally different life experiences from you. And so that's sort of listening in the passive sense, in the um, in the positive and active sense, listening to someone dignifies them. It gives them a feeling of meaning and purpose and recognition that is going to be really valuable to them and will elevate you in their eyes in a way that nothing else can. Oh, so good. Eric, you didn't know this, but I'm going to tell you, I've asked in the via workshops over 10,000 people the question of think of the greatest leader you've ever had. What did they do? And there is a top five response that no joke over 90% of the time public, private, for-profit, non-profit, U.S., foreign soil, cut up any way you want. I've done it, boomers and millennials. 90 plus percent of the time, there's one single top five response, and that is listening. And just like you just said, I believe it is so sought after and rarely practiced. If the world was filled with empathetic listeners, my gut tells me it's not a top five response, but it's a challenge to us all to show up with empathy, show up with curiosity, show up with humility and be where our feet are. And if we can do all those things, then we will be better listeners because you care who's on the other side. And with that, Playmakers, Eric, this has just been so awesome. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being on. Uh, Paul, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Another episode in the books. You know the drill. If it added value to your life, subscribe, share, leave a review, and help grow our Playmaker community. For keynote speaking and why coaching, visit paulepsteinspeaks.com. And last call, if you haven't already, take your why discovery now. Pull out your phones and text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, text the word why to 310-564-7857. Playmakers is proudly produced by Detroit Podcast Studios. Until the next time, dominate the day on purpose.